Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Did I tell you that we relaunched our TV podcast that is now called the Prestige TV Pod? We did it in time for Succession, which is launching in October. But there's so many good shows this fall. We got Yellowstone and Billions and Insecure. We have The Shrink Next Door. Is Mayor of Kingstown going to be good? We're going to be breaking all of it down. The morning show season finale. We are going to be here. Like, we're going to treat it like we treat the NBA playoffs. If there's a really good prestigious TV show, we're breaking it down in this feed. Check it out. The Prestige TV Pod from the Ringer Podcast Network. It's New York, New York, presented by FanDuel. Take a shot at betting the NBA with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub, filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100 Gambler or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Let's roll, baby. Welcome in. It is an early Wednesday edition of New York, New York with yours truly. JJ, John Strzemski, rocking and rolling right here on the Ringer Podcast Network. And a couple of days ago, as we were enjoying Super Wildcard Weekend, we're in football mode. You're thinking about giant GMs and head coaches galore. We mentioned the New York Knickerbockers and how Kind of under the radar, they'd gotten over 500. They had the big win against the Atlanta Hawks, and they had two very winnable games at Madison Square Garden against Charlotte and against Minnesota on back-to-back days. You're thinking the Knicks should go and win both of those games. At worst, you're coming away with a split. Nope. Try 0 for 2. The Knicks played... A rotten, flat, vile game on Monday where Charlotte didn't even have LaMelo Ball and they ended up losing the game. Had no answer for Bridges. Came out super flat. Couldn't hit a free throw. That's a common theme, might I add. The Knicks can't hit a free throw. 
That was pathetic on Martin Luther King Day. Today, this was one of those soul-crushing, rip-your-heart-out type of games. Because for the second day in a row, the Knicks came out super flat. They looked super lethargic on defense. Then you give them credit. 40-point third quarter where everybody is coming alive. Fournier is coming alive. We know the Nick record when he scores more than 18 points. It's really, really good. Julius Randle in that third quarter had some monster, monster plays. Late in the game, Kemba Walker in his first game back is hitting knockdown trays. He's hitting big-time shots. And it had all the makings of what looked to be a feel-good win for the Knicks. They had a nine-point lead and let it basically go right down the toilet in the fourth quarter for a couple of different reasons. Number one, the end-of-game execution was absolutely horrendous. Whether we're talking shot selection, we're talking turnovers, we're talking offensive sets, all of it stunk down the stretch of this game. All of it. You don't love the fact that you lose a couple of your bigs to foul trouble. First, it's Mitchell Robinson. Then, of course, it's Taj Gibson. That obviously played a role, but just awful, awful, awful offensive execution down the stretch, which allowed Minnesota to hang around. Then you get to the other elephant in the room that needs to be addressed for the two big players on this Nick team. Steph and I were talking about it right before we got on. They can't hit a free throw when it matters. I mean, let's be honest. Julius Randle or RJ Barrett comes to the charity stripe. I don't want to see him at the charity stripe. They can't hit him consistently. Two days in a row, the Knicks shot terribly from the foul line. Free throws matter, folks. Our buddy Brent Axe in Syracuse says it all the time. You don't expect it to be the case in the NBA game. You know, in the college game, that's when it is far more topsy-turvy, nutso. A lot of college teams don't hit free throws. I get it. I've been on college basketball the last decade of my life. I'm well aware. I've won games that way. I've lost games that way. You know the deal. In the NBA, though, normally we're talking about guys hitting free throws consistently. Unless you are the Dwight Howard, Shaquille O'Neal type. Randall, at the end of this game, you got to hit a damn free throw, dude. I'm sorry. And I know I'm going to keep coming back to the thumbs down thing. But, hey, in a Knicks fan's defense, I'm leaving Madison Square Garden. I'm giving Julius the big fat thumbs down. Hit a free throw. R.J. Barrett, terrible turnover at the end of the game. Terrible turnover at the end of the game. He's missing free throws. Might have had one of those boosts with Curry where it was significant to some. Would have been nice if he could have hit a couple of those free throws. They're killers. They're absolute killers. And then you got Carl Anthony Towns on the other side with the N1. Last possession, Fournier and Burks had chances. They don't knock it home. And the Knicks lose back-to-back games at the Garden. A couple of things here. Number one, the Knicks have not played well Madison Square Garden. For a home court that should be rocking, and it was rocking tonight. My sister was there. The great Kevin Belby was there. They were... It was a star-studded crew of Jastrzemski types at MSG. I was a little jealous and envious. Kind of wish I was there. Thankfully, I had Syracuse to hoot and holler for. Whoopie freaking dough. But to be two games under at home, unacceptable. To be missing free throws like that, unacceptable. Kind of what the Knicks have been all year. The game under 500. Something seems off. 
Something seems to be missing. And I think in many ways it starts with the talent on this team. And that's why you have to wonder between now and the end of February, status quo? Or is Leon Rose and company thinking about another trade or two that maybe is really going to change the look, the feel of this group and have this franchise as a whole? These are going to be some interesting questions to monitor over the next couple of weeks. But I'm disgusted with that loss tonight. That was just like, uh, it rips your heart out. For those of you who hopped on the Knicks money line, I know a couple of people who did. Mm, not what you want. Even though FanDuel's spreading the love for Thursday, we thank them for that. That was not what you wanted on Thursday. Brutal, brutal loss for the Knickerbockers. So, you got all that going on. But we're starting to get ready to set the stage for the divisional weekend. And some effort from the Arizona Cardinals on Monday night. I mean, you want to talk about a game that was basically over before it even began? I mean, my goodness. The Cardinals looked like they did not belong. Kyle Murray played terribly. Cliff Kingsbury got pants basically by Sean McVay. And the Ram defense was flying all over the field. Donald, Von Miller looked great. And hey, I'm fair. I have never been the leader of the Odell Beckham Jr. fan club. To me, wore out his welcome with the Giants. I soured on him with the Giants. The Joe Cena Anderson interview, which was a disgrace. Um, the, the, the nonsense. It was always something with Beckham. Super talented guy. Stellar start to his career. The last two or three years with the Giants, it was time to go. But I owned the fact. That I wondered if Beckham would buy in with Los Angeles. I did. Beckham has been great there. He's shut up. He's made plays. He's won over his teammates. Scored that first touchdown starting off the game. That was shades of old school, old Dell Beckham Jr. How many Giant fans were probably saying, well, where was this performance at Lambeau Field when Eli Manning was dropping you dimes in 2016? It's crazy to think about the fact that that was Odell Beckham Jr.'s first playoff touchdown in only his second career playoff game. But the Rams smoked the Cardinals, and now the stage is set for what should be as good a divisional weekend as the NFL could ever have. Find me the bad game. Look at the point spreads. You don't got any point spread hovering beyond the touchdown, double digits, none of that. High spread is Niners and Packers, and I think that's a juicy game. Titans-Bengals is fun. Rams-Buccaneers is fun. Game of the weekend, though. The Chiefs taking on the Buffalo Bills. Because in many ways, it feels like a championship Sunday type of game. Not a game that you would get in the divisional. But Allen, the way he's playing, Mahomes, Tyreek, Kelsey, and what Kansas City brings to the table. That's going to be a really tough game to pick. I can tell you this without hesitation. I know I'm picking two games. I've locked in the bets. This sign sealed delivered. The other two, I'm in the lab. I got a couple more days, about 48 hours or so, and then we got to unveil the picks with the great Joe Beningo. And it's amazing. I nailed all three of the NFC games. Three for three in the NFC, winless in the AFC. My home conference. So I got to right that wrong going into the weekend. Got to get these AFC games right. So... Find out come Thursday where we're leaning, where we're headed as we get ready for what should be a badass divisional round. I'll tell you what else was badass. And I had mentioned this on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Chris Herring's book on the 90s Knicks, I read in two days. It was amazing. It was such an easy read. The stories were off the rails. I grew up with the 90s Knicks. 
for a team that didn't win a championship. I love that team like they won five. Like, of course, the 90s Yankees will forever have my heart. Baseball, first love as a kid, you know, growing up, wanting to be Don Mattingly, then wanting to be Derek Jeter and Paul Neal. Listen, the Yankees, they, they won every year. But I love those Nick teams. And now I look back on those Nick teams and I love them that much more. Ewing, Starks, Oakley, Mason, Derek Harper, then the evolution with LJ and Allen Houston and Chris Childs, and then Sprewell and Camby. That's my heart in the 1990s. So there was a book by an author and a guy who's a tremendous writer, Chris Herring. I couldn't wait to read it. So they sent me an advanced copy. You, as a Nick fan, it's a must-have. Go get this book immediately. Thank me later. Chris will thank you and thank me later because I'm giving you a badass recommendation to get a sense for what you will be reading if you pick up Chris Herring's book. He's going to join us. I've been waiting for this conversation for a while because that 90s Knicks topic is always etched in the back of my mind. So we'll talk to the author of Blood Garden. That's coming up next. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. I've been waiting to have this guy on the pod for a couple weeks, and I've always loved his work, but he's now taking it to a level of like, my heart, my soul, my childhood. And the minute I saw that he was writing a book on the 1990s Knicks, I knew it was going to be badass. I knew it was going to be top of the line. I finished it in two days. You got to read it. You got to check it out. Blood Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. We have the author, the great Chris Herring. What's happening, Chris? Not much, man. I appreciate you having me on. And thank you so much for enjoying the book book was a tremendous read, I think, for our audience, which features a whole lot of diehard New York Knickerbocker fans. They're going to care. You know, you're going to be like mesmerized. The Riley stories, the Van Gundy stories, Ewing, Oakley. There's so many juicy tidbits. You covered the Knicks for a long time. You didn't get to cover the Knicks in the 1990s. What was the inspiration for you? to decide this is a project that's worth pursuing. Okay. Uh, I, I thought you were going somewhere else with the question. So that, that one's an easier one to answer. Um, and I think a lot of writers want to do a book at some point. <clears throat> My dad, you know, from the time I got out of college, was like, when are you going to write your book? What are you going to write your first book on? He would throw me book ideas. Uh, now, he was published several times. He was a professor. Um, so, you know, it was standard for him to publish. He's publishing different sort of stuff. But, you know, he passed away a few months before I uh, took on this book project. Someone approached me, a literary agent approached me about doing it. I said no a couple times um, because in my mind, I always thought, you know, when I do a book, it's going to be it's going to be something that I'm watching up close. It's going to be because I'm covering the Knicks and the Knicks win a championship. Uh, you know, and if you look at the 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 Bucks from last year when they won the, the Super Bowl, you know, there was a book that came out almost immediately after that 
You look at the Nats when they won their World Series. There was a book after that. There's always something like that. Uh, almost always like the story of the season. The Bucks. there's a book that came out after they won. So I always figured it would be something that I was watching up close. And so you want my perspective on it because I was up close. Uh, I never imagined it would be something 30 years later that, you know, you're looking back on and trying to make sense of or trying to kind of uncover the stories that have been buried for so long. Um, so that was part of the reason I said no at first. You know, I was trying to get over the loss of my dad. That was why I said no at first. And then I thought about it more and I said, well, my dad did always want me to do a book. I do want to do a book at some point. And if I'm going to do it, it makes more sense to do it now before I'm married, before I have children. It's it's obviously a, a heavily isolated thing to write a book. Um, and the, the last thing I thought about is, you know, if I want to do a book, it would be smart to do a first book on something that a lot of people care about. Because you get a lot of people that are willing to go buy a book that, you know, they care about. Uh, it doesn't get much bigger than the 90s Knicks. I mean, we can talk about the Jordan Bulls. Certainly, I'm from Chicago. I recognize that. But when you talk about something that hasn't been written about at length, the Knicks were really fascinating and really close to winning the whole thing and have a really big fan base and really changed the way the league looks aesthetically uh, because the rules changed so much because of how they played in the league, not wanting them to play that way. Um, this was kind of a perfect storm of a subject. And I thought about it more. I was like, I'd be stupid not to do this book, especially as a first book. Um, if I want to do a second one, um, this one has all the all the stuff it needs to kind of be successful from a sales standpoint and just capturing people's interest in me really getting to show my writing ability, I think. You did a tremendous job with it. Of course, we're so sorry for the loss of your father. And Thank you. I'm sure he was an incredible author and I'd love to check out his work. And if he kind of gave you any inspiration in your years as a writer, I mean, enough said, because like I said, I read this book in 48 hours. That's all you need to know about it, Nick fans. It was that good. Chris, does it, now looking back on it, surprise you even how beloved this group of players ended up becoming over time, even though the team didn't win a championship, even though in many ways the hallmark of the 90s Knicks, tough, fun to watch, took on the personality of the city, but came up short chapter after chapter after chapter. But you look back, maybe it's the Knicks being awful for a decade plus, all the dysfunction of Madison Square Garden. Chris, I look back on those teams as if they won championships. Like, I grew up with the 90s Yankees. I love those guys. Jeter, Mariano, uh, a, lot Williams. a lot of championships. But guess what? Right. I love Oakley, Starks, Ewing, LJ Houston just as much, and they didn't win. Like, there's something to that. Did you find that amazing going through this project? Yes. And uh, you're, you're totally right that uh, there were so many people that I talked to that eventually kind of said exactly what you're saying now, which is that Mason, Starks, and Oakley, at least during those years, I know people feel a little bit differently about Oakley in some cases now, but uh, Mason, Starks, Oakley, those guys were almost more beloved or were more beloved than Patrick at the time. Um, as far as the way fans felt about them, you know, fans were somewhat conflicted on Patrick. I don't think by and large that was true. I, I think that, you know, talk radio kind of came into vogue a lot more during the mid to late 90s. I think it stressed Patrick out. I think it frustrated him to kind of hear the criticisms as much as he did. And it made him think, you know, kind of the vocal minority uh, that Jeff Van Gundy references a lot of times in relation to that. But, you know, those other guys wore their heart on their sleeves. They were diving into the stands. They were getting into people's faces. Uh, none of that stuff was Patrick. Patrick hustled his butt off. It's not to say he did not. I'm not saying that. 
But what I'm saying is that I think his emotions were in check a lot more than the other guys. And I think New York City is a place that, you know, and I'm from Chicago where I watched those Derrick Rose teams, Joakim Noah and Taj Gibson and all these other guys that were just going to play really, really, really hard. And they might not be the best team. They might not have the most talent, but there's some talent there and there's some skill there and they work harder than everybody else. That's what the Knicks were, except they also were the most fearsome team in the league. Uh, you know, the team that was most feared because they just knocked guys around and it was actually like a directive and an order that Pat Riley had given them even from day one of practice with him is that he wanted his team to not only hack guys relentlessly and make it difficult on the officials to figure out when it's a foul and when it's not because they're fouling on every play, but also realizing the refs can't call a foul on every play. Uh, but also when you're hitting these guys to really hit them and really make it count, you know, there's a chapter in the book called Knock Michael Jordan to the Floor which is an actual order that Pat Riley gave them. And it scared the daylights out of Michael Jordan uh, for at least a game where he had one of the worst games of his career in the playoffs um, and gave them a fighting chance to win the series in seven. And Michael to that point in the championship era was the first and for a long time, the only time that Michael had been taken to seven games. Uh, and it was Pat Riley's first year and a year where, you know, people didn't really even expect that much from the Knicks when he first got there. You detail this in the book and the rise of Pat Riley with the Knicks leaves the Lakers, does a year of television, and the persona of Riley, you know, the Armani suits, the the slick back hair, the the Showtime Lakers who played this like beautiful brand of offensive basketball. But Chris, in many ways, the toughness, that like badass, we're gonna knock your ass to the ground type of deal. That's the personality of Pat Riley. Like, was that something that you really enjoyed getting stories from, getting perspective from this idea of this, you know, Armani slick back kind of guy pulling the cape back and wanting to knock people to the floor? Like, very unlike the image, if you will, of Riley. Yeah, no, I mean, I I, I knew some of that. You know, you watch the, there, there's one documentary that already exists on this team, the, the one with Reggie Miller, the 30 for 30 called Winning Time. And Jeff Van Gundy says that, you know, it's been out there for a while that Pat, that kind of fit his personality more, the heat fit his personality more. But I'll tell you, man, uh, I, I'm not going to toot my own horn here. I'll let people read the book for themselves and judge for themselves. But I will say that um, it was very fun reporting and talking to people about like Pat Riley's kind of alter ego uh, and the idea that, you know, that he really, really was kind of a violent guy as far as just the the stuff he was calling for, the stuff that he wanted out of his players, the fact that he would have his players sit and watch, you know, spliced film of Rams headbutting each other and car crashes before they would go out to play a game. Like, that's like maniacal kind of twisted stuff. But this is what he wanted. He wanted his guys on edge. Um, he wanted them to kind of go out and dislike a team. Uh, you know, I, I hired someone to do a book trailer, essentially a movie trailer for this book. And the video opens. It's kind of a cold open. He's up against a black backdrop interviewing with Charlie Rose. And he says, um, you know, that he doesn't really believe in the idea of these guys competing with opponents and being friendly with them. Not not while you're on the court, at least. There's no way. Not when you're competing against them. No way. And he's he's got a dead serious look on his face. So, I mean, Riley was a cold dude. And I really don't think uh, some of it, you know, you can wonder whether it was for show. I don't really think it was because the way he played was really physical and really aggressive. Um, and it was kind of how he earned his keep in the NBA. So 
he was just wired differently. I don't think you could have a guy like that. Certainly not with that kind of messaging now. But even outside of that, the stuff that he was ordering the Knicks to do or saying that, like, this is what I want to kind of before I take over, the idea of sidelining the team psychologist and saying you can't work with the players anymore, I don't think that would fly. The idea of taking an injured player like Charles Smith, who has recently had a surgery on his knees, and saying, you know, as Charles walks in the locker room in a suit while everyone else is in their uniform, asking Charles, you know, if I needed one minute from you tonight to win me a championship, could you give me that one minute? Like, what is someone supposed to even say to that? Like, if you can't play and it's a legitimate injury, you can't play. But Pat essentially was calling out his toughness in front of the rest of the team. That doesn't, you cannot do that. And not to mention that Charles Smith had like chronic knee problems, uh, which, you know, I guess was unknown at the time or unknown. But uh, this was just a different dude, a guy that he was super, super uh, all the way in or all the way out as far as the way he viewed his relationships with players and executives and the team in general. And, you know, he, he lived by a certain code, but then kind of broke it when he wanted to, as it related to the the heat and leaving for the heat. But to me, he was the central character in this book. You know, um, I've had some people ask me like, why is Patrick so late in the book? I've got his chapter in chapter 17. Patrick wasn't the new character when this book starts in 1991. Riley was, uh, Patrick had been there for six years I wanted to try to capture everybody in some sort of period of transition or transformation. Patrick's life was changing a lot by the time he got to 1997. That wasn't really the case in 1991. So uh, Riley is, is far and away. I mean, he's right in the center of the cover photo used for the cover of the book. And he's, you know, he's in the middle of everything. Even once he leaves, he's their arch nemesis all of a sudden when he goes to Miami. So he's a fascinating character. So when you did your look back on those early to mid Riley Nick years, 93 and 94, clearly the two best teams. A lot of people, and I always thought, Chris, 94, their best shot. Jordan retires. You finally break through. You finally make the NBA Finals. You have the 3 true lead going down to Houston, which is completely overshadowed because of the OJ chase. They squander game three when Sam Cassell goes off, and they might have won that series in five if you don't have that. But a lot of people, and Ben Gundy said this to me when I had him on this show, he thought the team the year before was better and that their chance up 2-0, Jordan stinking up the joint in game three. Forget about Charles Smith in game five. That game three and not killing the Bulls right then and there was their best chance. Do you agree with that? Here, I'm going to say this. I don't think it was their best chance, but I do understand where he's coming from. Uh, may maybe if, if you win game three, I think you can maybe argue that because at that point you go up 3-0, there's not a team. I mean, you could be the 73 and, and nine Warriors. You could be anybody. You're, at that point, you're up 3-0. You're supposed to win. Uh, wow. Just to even think about the fact that they could have been up 3-0 in that series against the Bulls. So, yes, that, you know, I think there's something to be said for the fact that, yes, Jordan shoots poorly in game three. We should have won. I don't know if it's quite that simple. The Bulls still had a, you know, a good team around him. Uh but yeah, certainly it was a missed opportunity to not win a game where Michael shoots that poorly, um, because you you know you're thinking that uh oh you're gonna you're gonna kind of um, the dragon's gonna come out all of a sudden because Michael is angry about the New York Times story about his gambling and now they're gonna rile him up. He seemed rattled in that game in game three uh, and shot really poorly, so they could have gone up that night three zero. What I will say though is once you get to the Charles Smith sequence in game five where it's tied two to two. 
I do take a little bit of issue. I, I don't dispute necessarily that maybe it was the best team. And I, you know, Jeff would know better than I would uh, that they had during that era. But what I will say is that even if you win that game, you've still got to beat Michael Jordan once out of two tries, which is not a given by any means. It's very easy to lose two games in a row to Michael Jordan. Uh, and then even if you win that, you've got to win the finals. And, you know, so that they might have won that year. I think, was that the year Phoenix made it to the finals, Phoenix I think? with Barkley and KJ, oh, yeah. Okay, so, like, it's fully possible they win that series. Uh, it's a team with quite a bit of offense. Um, it was a team that they got in a massive brawl with earlier that season as well, the Knicks. Um, so I'm not, you know, like, all I'm saying is that you've got to beat Jordan one more time and you've got to go through Phoenix. And Phoenix had the best record in the league that year, so I'm not, I don't think it's a guarantee they win that series. Then you've got 97, which is the year that they get into the fight if you want to call it a fight, PJ Brown basically suplexes Charlie Ward. Um, and you know, in a, what a lot of people would think was a dirty play either by Charlie or the fact that PJ Brown suplexed the guy that's nine inches shorter. You know what I learned, him. Chris, from the book, this idea that PJ Brown is like this, this, like this religious man, he's this family man. Like I didn't yeah. know that about, listen, as a kid growing up, I hated PJ Brown because everything <laughs> you were about to say Makes me live it to no end. The Knicks come off the bench. They got to have that inspirational game six where they play great for like a half and then they completely run out of gas. And then Hardaway yeah. smokes them in game seven. But I wanted the Bulls that year because they beat them in the regular season. I, I don't think they would have beat them, but it was just like a fun Nick team. Houston, LJ, they brought in Chris Childs. That was, in, in many ways, Chris, Ewing's last great year was that 96-97 season, I think, before he fractured his wrist in Milwaukee. That was the end you're, of Patrick Ewing. You're totally right. And that's all I'm saying is that I think that year would have been fun for fans because they you're, you've been just waiting and waiting and waiting. At that point, you've waited, what is it, six years, seven years to, to beat the Bulls when Michael's there. And you feel like that's finally your shot. They played the Bulls four times that year. They won two of them. The two they lost, they lost by three points total. I mean, they were extremely evenly matched from that standpoint. The Knicks, like, they'd finally gotten just enough offense to balance out a really dominant defense. They got Larry Johnson. They got Allen Houston. They got Chris Childs. This is their shot. Uh, you know, that's what they're thinking. Ernie Grunfeld was convinced that that might have been their year. And then that happens. Like, I, again, and most of the people I talked to say exactly what you just said. It's like, I don't know that we beat the Bulls. I think it would have been an interesting series. It, it wasn't one that you could just say definitively, the Bulls have this and it's easy. I don't know of anyone that says definitively the Bulls, the Knicks would have won, but it would have been competitive. And at that point, anything goes. The Knicks had played them just as competitively as basically anybody. You know, the result was the same each time when Jordan was playing. But so that's the thing is that to me, I have to go back to 94, to your initial question. 94 is the year where, you know, they could potentially win the, the whole thing in game six, if Starks doesn't get a shot block, uh, well, I won't say get a shot block because it wasn't like he did something to get a block. Um, Hakeem Olajuwon makes an incredible play. He's a two-time reigning defensive player of the year. He blocks Starks' shot with a fingernail. I mean, you still can't even really see his hand make contact with the shot, but obviously the trajectory of the shot was thrown off by the ball being touched. That's how close that was. Starks had made six shots in a row going into that shot. He was on fire. He had 16 or 17 points in the quarter. This is the only good thing they had going that night. He has an open look or what seems to be an open look. And Hakeem gets barely a fingernail on it to send it to game seven. Then you've got game seven, but Starks is still traumatized from game six. He hasn't slept in three nights. 
he's essentially, you know, been an insomniac for three nights. Um, and on top of that, he refuses to stop shooting when he's one for 13. Riley refuses to take him out of the game for a couple of reasons. One, he'd been on fire for games two to six. He'd had double digit fourth quarters in games four, five, and six. But also, and I raised this in the book, um, Pat Riley, despite the fact that he's got Rolando Blackman sitting there, a guy that has killed the Rockets throughout his career, that the Rockets admit to me on the record in the book, they're afraid that Pat Riley is going to bring him into the game because they've never had a way of stopping him. Rolando Blackman got in an argument, a pretty heated argument with Pat Riley two and a half weeks before that. And do I personally think that's why Riley didn't use him? I don't think it's what I think, but I included it because it's what a lot of the players think. And Rolando has that question in his mind, not to mention that Riley has, one, called it the biggest mistake he's ever made in his career. Two, that he's also written a handful of handwritten letters to Rolando Blackman over the years that I think could kind of be construed as an apology that Rolando Blackman's just never written back to. Um, so all that stuff taken into account. They were one game away, one shot away. Even if you go to game seven, six points away seven points away, I guess, from winning a championship. That, to me, seems more feasible than winning that one because it was right there as opposed to, well, if we get the Bulls, we could have maybe beaten them, and then if we get, then you got to win the next round and then, you know, win the finals. Maybe. Like, it's harder to win two rounds. It's harder to beat Jordan in one game and then win another round against the team that has more wins than you in the West with the Suns. So I, I tend to look at 94 and think that was their best shot, but maybe their best team was 93, the way Van Gundy said. Maybe. I'm glad that you brought up Blackman because I was going to ask you, the greater what if for the Knicks, Blackman not playing in that NBA Finals with a success, as you mentioned, against the Houston Rockets, or the Knicks not resigning the X-Men after the 92 season and that contract falling through the way that it fell through. And he gave Jordan all sorts of fits. He had that great playoff series when they took it to seven games. The, the greater what if, you think in like spending some time and kind of really digging into this, is it X-Men or is it not playing Blackman? Again, I, you know, for me, I'm still going to go with, with 94, I guess Blackman. I think it's just more if they'd handled Starks differently. I don't even know if it had to be Rolando. You just had to take Starks out. You know, like, cause I, I think people view it in a black and white sort of way. Putting Blackman in doesn't mean that Starks can't go back in the game. It just means like, We've got to get you off the floor for a couple of minutes, even if it's just to catch your breath. Like, exhale, man. It's going to be okay, but you can't keep shooting like this. Like, you can't keep shooting, period, if you're shooting that poorly. I mean, he was missing some shots that were just destroying the backboard, you know, in some cases. Other ones where he's missing by a foot and a half. Um, so even if it was a two-minute breather, I think that that might make a difference for starts. Maybe something to shift the momentum a little bit or just stop the bleeding. Whereas with X-Men... You look at it statistically, he didn't really play that well. The, the thing was, the Knicks had been afraid to kind of extend X-Man um, during the season that he was with the Knicks. He was pretty inconsistent. You know, I re wrote in the book that he would pump fake all the time, even though there wasn't a defender there all the time. He was like kind of reluctant to shoot. Um, he was struggling to settle into a role offensively. They wanted him to be their second scorer. And really, that became Starks that year. Um, so they were kind of, they were kind of, conflicted about whether to resign him and then he goes off against the Bulls and he starts playing physically to the point where like he's making life difficult for Scotty Pippen and so then they're like okay so maybe we do resign him 
the team doctors were still saying not to resign him because he had bad knees and in, in their estimate and their uh in their professional opinion and that did kind of end up spelling the end of his career like in his very very early 30s he was having knee problems so i'm not sure he makes the difference going forward you know he certainly gave them another body uh and a physical guy against the bulls but i'm not completely convinced i don't know maybe maybe he makes a difference in that bull series obviously they were afraid of him to some extent and given that they made it as far as they did if you have him there and not charles smith maybe they might win that series and maybe they do win a title but um you know the thing that i find really interesting it wasn't if I'm blaming the Knicks for something, I'm not blaming him for like a lack of interest in, in Xavier McDaniel. If anything, maybe I'm blaming them for communication. I do say in the book that X, you know, talks about how frustrated he was with the Knicks. It's fascinating to me because even talking to him about it a couple of years ago for this book, he says, man, if the Knicks, you know, essentially the Knicks just let me out there hanging out there to dry. And they told me I was a priority, but they just let me sit there until two, three weeks before training camp was set to start. What am I supposed to do at that point? But what it was, now it's a standard thing. Bird rights in the NBA, the whole idea of bird rights, meaning that you can exceed your salary cap if you're bringing back someone that's been under contract with you for a while, or you own the rights to their contract, basically, and you've had those rights for a while. So X-Man was one of the first examples of the Knicks having bird rights and using them. They told him, We're, you're going to be like the last thing we do this offseason because that's the way it has to work. We can't officially make a deal with you until we do everything else and you have to be our our last sign because of the way it works. They were trying to add extra talent. They were trying to add Doc Rivers and Charles Smith through a trade. I think Charles Smith probably would be a backup. X would be the starter. Um, but they weren't trying to replace him. They are just trying to get more scoring to go with him. X, after a while, though, was like, they, they could not possibly be prioritizing me because they still haven't made a deal with me yet. So he ended up asking Patrick, after he got an offer from the Celtics, look, man, like the Celtics want me. What do you think I should do? This is what X told me. And he said, Patrick told him, well, man, honestly, if, if, if our management really thought you were that important and really wanted to keep you, they would have figured out something by now. And so Patrick kind of pushed him out the door. Like people say, was it Falk? Was it Jordan? Was it David Falk, you know, trying to help out Michael Jordan? Patrick kind of told him like, yeah, you're right. They're not prioritizing you. Like you got to do what you got to do. Like, that's not something you say, like, particularly if you don't understand how bird rights work. And maybe the Knicks, that's what I'm saying. Maybe they didn't explain it well enough. But to me, that's pretty critical that he walked out the door over something. It wasn't substantial, substantial money. Um, the Knicks, I think, were going to take care of him. They just had to do it a certain way. I don't know if he misunderstood it. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it did cost them just from the standpoint of they could have had Xavier McDaniel and the guys they traded for. And Doc Rivers and Charles Smith, instead, they just had one or the other. And uh, I think some of that stems from communication. You covered the Knicks for a long time during some crazy periods. Riley leaving. Like, I think about myself and the platform that I have and the position that I'm in. Like, I would have been, like, beside myself doing these shows. I think it would have made for some amazing theater and amazing content. This beloved figure, this larger-than-life figure basically faxing his resignation for the New York Knicks and then finding his way to Miami in doing your research and doing your prep work for the book. Is there a definitive telltale moment, Chris, where you kind of got a sense from people you talked to around Riley, this was the end? Did he know midway through that 94-95 season? Was it the, the end loss to the Indiana Pacers? When 
do you think was the moment for Pat Riley? He said, I'm done with the Knicks. Yeah, no, I, I think honestly, there was a moment where he said, I'm done. Uh, if you want that sort of detail, it was an hour after that Pacers game in game seven, which is incredible that, you know, Dave Checkets has said this, the team president has said this. He's frustrated because he basically feels like Riley had to know what he was doing and he had to know that this was what he was planning during a time where he should have been preparing for the Pacers and he had to have been distracted. Like there's no way he couldn't have been distracted with how quickly everything moved after the series was over. He got on the phone. He was on the team bus an hour after that happened. And uh, on the team bus, again, within earshot of other people telling his boy, you've got a friend over, you you know the guy that just took over the heat, set up the deal because I'm out of here. So, yes, there was a moment where that happened, but even more so than that, and this is, you know, I think this does go back to what Chekis was saying. The Knicks were struggling at the end of 94, the, the calendar year. Um, they were 12 and 12, which was the worst record they'd had through 24, 25 games, really, in Riley's tenure by far. It was the worst record they had by far. And so they have a long break, I think, from like the 27th to like the second without any games. So Riley decided to give them like three days off or something like that, basically to let them celebrate New Year's Eve. Riley also is looking forward to getting out of town. And Riley uh, charters a jet, uh, gets a jet. And goes to Aspen to go visit his friend, a wealthy real estate developer named Dick Butera. And he goes out there and he basically says, like, I'm I'm kind of getting to the end here in New York. I just don't think I don't know if my heart's in this anymore to be there. And Dick Butera says, oh, interesting you'd say that, Pat, because me and some of my wealthy friends are thinking about buying an NBA franchise, you know. And as he says that, you know, he says, well, which one? He's thinking about buying the Miami Heat a team that has no history to speak of. They're relatively new. So Pat kind of says, hmm, interesting. Well, if you do that, I'm in. You know, just let me know. Pat still has another year left on his contract with the Knicks, though. So he's really not allowed to be having that conversation or be really entertaining that because no matter what happens, despite what, you know, and at that point, by the way, the Knicks were trying to extend Pat Riley's contract because he'd just taken them to the finals. It's very clear he's a great coach, even if, you know, stuff is starting to kind of burn thin at both ends. Riley's a great coach. You're, you, of course you want to keep him. He's the best coach in the game. You know, maybe you can start putting Phil Jackson close to that conversation, but Riley had already won more titles by that point than Phil had. So, I mean, the fact that he was entertaining it at that point, when we're talking about January, New Year's Eve, he's talking to somebody else about the idea of like, if you buy this team, I'll go with you. Like, it doesn't really look very good. I, I get that he was frustrated with the Knicks. I get that the Knicks did not really entertain the idea of an ownership stake for him. So it's funny because the people highest up with the Knicks really don't badmouth Riley from the standpoint of like saying, how could you leave? Because he got so much more money. He got an ownership stake. Of course, there was more money. They understand it. They were more frustrated at the end once everything came out. Like, you're making it look like there was something you were frustrated with about us, like something we were doing. Had nothing to do with us. We were off. We were doing what was kind of standard. We were trying to double your salary, make you the highest paid coach in the league. You wanted ownership. So, like, you know, someone else was willing to give it to you. Of course you left. But don't make it out that you had all these concerns and all these frustrations with X, Y, or Z about the way the team operated. Your your frustration was that you wanted an ownership stake. We said we couldn't give it to you, and you went shopping at a time where you legally weren't allowed to shop. That was essentially what happened. And uh, I think there's truth to that. But I also don't know that Riley could have survived much longer 
in New York. Just the, the pace and intensity that he coached with was just scary. And I, you know, it just felt like it was not sustainable. If he had done it, I think he would have needed to move into management the way he did with Miami because it just kind of felt like he was losing patience with so many things. He was getting so paranoid and it, it started to show in a, in a pretty visceral way, I think. And your book, obviously, the end of Pat Riley and his Nick chapter, it's 1995. And yet he's still this like larger in life figure in the book because he ends up going down to Miami. And just from reading the chapters on Riley, Chris, it must have bugged him to no end that this little balding assistant that he had that he loved that he couldn't bring onto his staff with the heat. He's slugging the Diet Cokes. He's got the bags under his eyes. And they're beating the Heat when the Heat are like a one or a two seed, like year after year after year. And I know Riley ultimately gets revenge because, listen, he won a title in 06. He builds the big three Miami team and has great success there. But it must have aided him the idea that Van Gundy was beating him in the playoffs. That must have just driven him insane. Yeah, and those two guys, I mean, we're talking about guys that were close. You know, Riley never let anybody too close to him. So let me rephrase that. But Jeff did. I mean, Jeff, I think, was a little bit more in tune with kind of just dealing with people. He's more of a people person than than Riley was. You know, Jeff, I don't even know if he described himself as a people person, but he really was. I mean, he. I have an anecdote in the book about him essentially more or less babysitting for a, a, a secretary, you know, one of the executive secretaries in the office because she was a single mother and Jeff could see how difficult it was for her to try to get stuff done with her five-year-old son there on a day off from school. So Pat, uh, I'm sorry, Jeff basically took the kid for ice cream and would do puzzles with him and stuff. Uh, he, he, was, he, had a, a, he had a big part uh, where Pat didn't generally show that for guys, at least not often. Um, but Jeff adored him. I mean, Jeff put the guy on such a pedestal. He named his daughter. His daughter's middle name was Riley. Uh, and that was intentional. That was after Pat. So they had a close relationship, but then Miami and New York happens. And Jeff, after being frustrated that Riley wants to take him with, and the Knicks saying no, because obviously, you know, Jeff Van Gundy was under contract. So had Pat been, you know, Pat had been under contract too. He just tampered and was tampered with. And so he left the deal. Um, but, you know, the Heat certainly had to pay a price, a little bit of a price for that. Um, but the Knicks said, absolutely not. You can't go to Miami. Like, we're not going to let you have something on the way out when Jeff is a you know a commodity for us. So they they do start to have friction though when their teams hate each other. And they they are the same teams, basically same play calls, same sorts of roster design, same sort of playing style, why the games were, you know, 81, 79 and 77, 74. They were a work of art, Chris Herring. They were a work of art, baby. It's not it's not a kind of art that a lot of people want to buy. I'll put it that I way. understand that. Um, and, and including but, but the NBA fans, right about now, including the NBA. <laughs> right, right, right. So the thing was, you know, at one point, um, especially when you had the fight between Alonzo Mourning and Larry Johnson and Jeff steps in and grabs Alonzo, tries to, and he slides down his leg like a fire pole. Riley was extremely critical of Van Gundy, basically saying, like, he had no business out there. It was like an amateur move. What are you doing? If anything, grab your own player. Don't touch mine. Like, what are you doing? You know, you should know better. So he's calling Jeff out publicly in a way that, you know, hurts Jeff a little bit. And it hinders the relationship for a while at that point. The the relationship kind of soured. Um, it, it finally got repaired in 99, basically, where you had the heat 
as a one seed. The Knicks is an eight seed. Knicks are obviously not favored to win the series. Um, but what ended up happening is you had Jeff Van Gundy just kind of survive barely by the skin of his teeth uh, being fired. They go on a run towards the end of the season. They take that series to a fifth game, and then they end up winning on that, you know, that kind of, for Knicks fans, historic Allen Houston shot uh, at the end of that series. And it's after that that the Knicks go on to their next series to play against the Atlanta Hawks. When they get to Atlanta, they get to their hotel in Atlanta. Riley has left a telegram for Jeff Van Gundy uh, for when he gets there. And he calls him coach uh, instead of calling him Jeff in the letter, which Pat had never called Jeff coach, but he wanted to show him. It was it was essentially as much of an olive branch as you would get from Riley, which is why I was saying with, earlier with Rolando Blackman, they were essentially apology letters, I think. I don't know that he's ever really apologized to people, but I think in that case with uh, with Jeff, this was his way of saying, I went too far when I called you out for what you did with Alonzo and Larry Johnson. I think there was love there in a way that only Pat Riley could really show love. Like he, He's not a real touchy-feely sort of guy, at least with his players and his assistants and stuff like that. But I think he was saying, by calling Jeff Pote for the first time, he was saying, you've, you've shown you belong here. No question. And he had mentored Jeff. I mean, he was mentoring Jeff to become a head coach. Um, but I think that moment where he's been beaten. And by the way, the Knicks won three out of those four series. Um, against the Heat in four straight years. All the series went the distance. The only series they did not win was the one they were up 3-1 in before the P.J. Brown, uh, Charlie Ward fight happens or fight, you know, whatever you want to call it happens, skirmish happens. But the Knicks very easily could have gone four for four, um, despite the fact that they often were not the team with the higher seed or with the better record. You talked to a lot of cool people for this project. Was there a particular favorite that you had? Ah. Uh... Probably. There were probably a couple. Um, you know, when it came down to it, I think it was, there were like three or four, if I have to be honest with you. One was Ed Tapscott, who was the GM of the team later, not during the, the time that the book takes place, but later. His memory was just so good. I mean, the stuff that he remembered and how vividly he remembers it, uh, down to like clothing people were wearing, down to the names of hotels, down to the way that people folded napkins um and just a, a sweetheart of a guy nice guy um i really enjoyed him he was giving me details on what sitting next to reggie miller's wife was like during a playoff game and how much it was annoying the knicks executives because she was just shouting the whole game and just shouting and yelling about the, the knicks and john starks and everything else so he was a fantastic resource uh, you know who i really really appreciate um bob Salmi was a guy uh an assistant coach he was a video coordinator for the team during those years. He was also the one kind of plugging in all their early age analytics stuff before most teams were doing it. So he was learning how to use a computer to put in numbers and put in metrics that the Knicks were measuring. He was great. He told me, you know, he was the one that told me he was at a strip club and saw Patrick Ewing and decided to pull a prank on Patrick Ewing there. He was a guy that talked about how much weight he lost trying to rebound uh, jump, shoot, jump shot drills from Greg Anthony because he couldn't shoot. He was the guy that told me this didn't even make the book. He was the guy that told me that uh, Greg Anthony left a loaded gun in the weight room at one point. Whoa. And then when he leaves the loaded gun there, he takes it. Bob Salmi takes the gun and he is going to go retrieve it basically to give to Pat Riley to say somebody left this there. Um, but Pat Riley is watching film in his office, which he does when he only does it in a completely black room, pitch black, dark. 
Um, so Bob Salmi walks up there with a gun, opens the door, and is standing there in the doorway with a gun. And Pat Riley is standing there in the dark, sitting there in the <laughs> dark watching film. So he's terrified. And Bob, I think, knew it and kind of played into it a little bit. And Pat Riley thinks that his assistant coach is going to go postal. So there was that. You know, all these stories came from Bob. Uh, he was just a fantastic resource for this book. Uh, also mentioned to me that, you know, Anthony Mason essentially left a death threat for Don Nelson on his desk. Oh. Um, so, you know, there there were a lot of details that he's giving me where I'm just like, this is, and this is the sort of stuff that I, when people tell me that, and there aren't that many people, but there are some that will say like, oh, like, why would you write about the 90s Knicks? They didn't win anything. Okay, fine. Then ignore all this stuff. It's interesting to me. It's interesting I, to I'm a mean, legion. I mean, I can fans. only imagine getting these stories, Chris. Can only I, imagine. I appreciate that. And, and and that's my thing is that I think you can watch. I mean, it's, a lot of people will. I will watch everything there ever is to watch on Michael Jordan on those Bulls teams. But at a point, you kind of know most of what there is to know, right? You know, because there's so much of it. Are you really going to tell me that you would rather watch like the 30, 39 millionth, you know, documentary show story about those Bulls teams? And like, we can't get a single thing on those Knicks teams that were basically, I know they didn't beat Michael Jordan, but they were like toe to toe with them during those years. They, this, this was a team that feared the Knicks just like everybody else did. They really did not want anything to do with them. You've read the book. You know that there is something in the fourth chapter called Knock Michael Jordan to the Floor. Michael says, I thought they were trying to take my head off. I thought they were going to take my head off. I just want this series to be over. It's brutal. It's been brutal. I mean, this is Michael Jordan, the best player of, of all time, saying that. So don't tell me that they didn't matter, number one, in terms of how difficult they were to beat. But also don't tell me they didn't matter from the standpoint. This team, I would argue, I think they changed the way basketball is played far more than the Bulls ever did. That's not me saying they were better. It's not me saying they were more entertaining. They were more fun. I don't, I'm not making value judgments on that. I think most people would prefer to watch the team that's going to win the most. So that's the, the Jordan Bulls. I understand that. But the league felt such a need to get rid of the way the Knicks were playing basketball. And I think a lot of it was born out of the fact that they were actively trying to hurt people and they were actively trying to scare people. And so I get it. But don't tell me that that part, like, don't tell me you're a, a basketball head and that you love 90s basketball or that the 90s are so important to you and you won't take the chance to learn how this team mattered and why they mattered the way they did. Because fundamentally, it would have taken longer for us to get this version of basketball we see now without that team. Because that team, the league said, we cannot have this anymore. And so I think that matters. And I think it's a huge part of history. It is kind of the counterpoint or the rest of the story as it relates to Michael Jordan in the 90s. I think. Kind of comes full circle, Chris. And I appreciate the time because last year was like this feel-good year for Nick fans. And who's on the bench? Tom Thibodeau, Jeff Van Gundy's yep. guy. And I remember, I think it was like a year, year and a half ago when the Knicks were looking for a head coach. And I'm so nostalgic for what I had during my childhood. I was like, I either want Jeff Van Gundy back or I want Tom Thibodeau coaching the team because they understand what it's like for New York City to be a buzzing with the Knicks being this relevant force. And listen, the team, they, they still got a ways to go. They got smoked by the Atlanta Hawks. They overpaid Julius Randle. On and on we go. But do you like, as a whole now, as you've gone through this project of writing this book about the 90s Knicks, and you know the league very, very well right now. Do you think the Knicks are in a good place with where they're at with their front office and with Tibbs coaching the team? 
I, I, I just like to see it a little bit longer. I, it was interesting. I, uh, I did a, a Reddit AMA a little bit earlier. Wow. And they How were about that? Like, you went down that road. God bless you. I, I did. I did. You know, which is fine. I've never I, been on Reddit I, I kinda, before. Somebody said I got to get on there at some point. I don't know if I'm brave enough can, to do it, but I give you credit. It can be a little crazy. I think the NBA folks are, are pretty good, though. And I think particularly for something like this, where a lot of people are passionate about this teams. But somebody asked me, like, do you think the Knicks could actually do this with Dolan at the helm? Could they win with Dolan at the helm, win a title with Dolan at the helm? And I said, I think it's kind of like we've seen owners that are can't get out of their own way win. I mean, not that many examples, but like LeBron did it in Cleveland. Uh, I think most people would say Dan Gilbert is not among the finest uh, owners in the league. So it's doable, but I think you have to have a superstar and I think you need to have stability. And it was interesting because I said that and someone was like, I think we have stability now, dot, dot, dot. Like, basically, like, you know, Leon Rose, the, the Knicks have stability now. I'm like, okay. But we always rush to say that when the Knicks do anything normal. They've had one year, one full year with Leon Rose. Last year was wonderful. No one's taking that from them. I'm certainly not trying to. I'm not saying that they're not stable or that they're doing a bunch of stuff that makes them unstable. What I'm saying is that sustainability and stability, generally, you can't look at one year or even one or two years like the book you just read was essentially describing a 10 year period in which the Knicks were in the playoffs every year. And you it was can like a given, Chris, given second every round every year, good year, conference finals, great year, NBA finals. That's what you grew up with, basically. At least I did. Right. So, and, and all these people did. And maybe some of the younger ones have not. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 35, so it's not like I'm old enough to remember all that stuff. But my point is that true stability is being able to do this for a while. Like if the Knicks missed the playoffs this year, are they going to do something that's a total about face? Do they trust the young guys they've got? Do they give up on somebody? Do they do they trade RJ away for something? Which that's not me saying they're going to or that they're looking to. But my point is that if you you have to really kind of hold tight to what you've said you're going to do, and we we haven't had enough of a track record from Leon Rose yet. That's not me knocking him or saying he's about to mess up. It's just me saying that let's stop tracking the team in terms of one year increments. I mean that's the way you do it from season to season, but you can't track sustainability and stability over a one-year, one-and-a-half-year increment. Uh, we need to see more. We need to see what happens when stuff falls flat, which, quite frankly, you know, I, I'm not super underwhelmed with how the Knicks have done this year. I, I think some people had higher hopes for them than what they've done, but um, we knew the East was going to be tougher this year, and this is about where they were record-wise last year, and they haven't been completely healthy, so we'll see. I think the real thing is that, again, they need a superstar at some point, Julius is not a number one guy. It's not any knock on him. He made the ascension to a number one guy last year in a way that no one expected, um, especially after the year he would have been coming off of going into last year. So no one expected it, but I think he would look a lot better in a number two role. I think RJ would look lethal in a number three role um, if you were able to do that for him. Um, you know, so at some point they're going to have to have that. They're going to have to have a guy that can play long minutes at point guard, and you really don't want that to be Rose. Uh, even though he stayed healthy last year. And obviously it's not Kimba. And so maybe it's IQ developing even more and getting somebody else. But I think that's the thing is that I think they could do it. I think they could build something sustainable. But I think it, normally when you have great sustainability in an organization, because you've got one one guy that is there that holds everything up, at least for a while. And the Knicks have not had that guy. I guess they had Carmelo, but that was not enough for them. Uh you got to have somebody that uh, does it and is a better all-around player than Carmelo was, I think. Chris, this was awesome. Thank you so much for a couple of minutes. The book was fantastic. For anybody who wants to check this book out, if you 
If you love the 90s Knicks, if you hated the 90s Knicks, it is an absolute must-read. Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 90s New York Knicks. Chris Herring, where can we find the book? It, it should be everywhere at this point. I, I did a quick walk around the city and uh, just walking into Barnes & Noble. The, the book didn't come out until today, the 18th. It's been available here in New York for like a week and a half, two weeks. So I think most of the bookstores in New York should have it now. Um, but you could always get it online, bookshop for the independent stores. If you want to get it on Amazon, which might be the quickest delivery, it's definitely there. Barnes and Noble's got it. Your independent places should have it. So audio books are available. You, you name it. Kindle, it's everywhere. And uh, I hope people will take a chance to read it. But thank you for giving me a chance to plug a little bit. Brother. I appreciate you. It was a badass book. He's a tremendous, tremendous guy and a tremendous writer. Chris Herring. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much. I appreciate you. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. So that was awesome. You got to get Chris Herring's book. Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 90s New York Knicks. I read it in two days. And I'm not one of these guys that's reading 20 books like I'm, you know, the scholastic bookworm like I used to be. You know, there was a time I used to read books left and right. Now it's just, you know, it's tough. I, I got sports to watch. I got podcasts to do. I got television to do. That maybe is a New Year's resolution for me, quite frankly. I should be reading more. I mean, I read plenty. Twitter the internet, social media, newspapers, et cetera, but books. I should really be reading about 10 books a year. So maybe that's something that I strive for here in 2022. All right, voicemails. You guys always strive for excellence with these. I expect nothing but the best. 917-382-1151. That's where we make magic. All right, fellas, let's hear them. What do we got? James, John from Long Island. I'm walking down 7th Avenue, headed out of Madison Square Garden trying to walk off the thing of that brutal, brutal fucking Nick loss to the Timberwolves. That was all the highs and lows of this next season. Fucking Fournier fought his ass off. Randall fought his ass off. All these guys were hitting shots. And then down the stretch, we just completely lost it. James, why can't this team hit a fucking free throw in the fourth quarter? What is the problem? What is going on? And look, the refereeing was inconsistent. But, you know, we could have hit some shots. You know, maybe played a little bit of better defense down the stretch. Instead, it just all fell apart on us after the garden was fucking electric. And I am in pain, Jage. I am in pain. That really hurt my fucking feelings. RJ had two brutal possessions down the stretch. Those were terrible. What was going on? Two straight turnovers. Oh, my goodness gracious. And what's worse, Jage? I was sitting next to this really cute girl. We talked the whole game. I forgot to get her fucking number. Fuck. L's all around, JJ. Fucking damn it. Bye. That is a brutal job across the board. From the Knickerbockers and by you. That pretty girl next to you. You're a single guy. You're taking the town in Madison Square Garden. You got to get the number. And you really can't wait till the end of the game. And I know the predicament that if you try to go for the number a little too early, then if she says no, you're stuck there and you got to watch the final six, seven minutes in agony. But 
You know how crazy these games get at the end. You don't got much time to do much else. Game ends. It's a heartbreaking loss. You're getting hell out of there. So you dropped the ball there, my friend. And the Knicks dropped the ball. You're right. Hideous cross-court passes. Idiotic. Terrible turnovers. And missed free throw shooting. It never fails. It will always, always cost you. Randall and Barrett have not hit them at the end of these games the way they need to be hitting them. And I can give you a bunch of different instances this year where RJ's missed a bunch of free throws late and Randall's missed a bunch of free throws late. Sure enough, right on cue tonight, both guys killed the Knicks down the stretch. Killed them. Now, Randall had a spectacular third quarter. Hit a damn free throw, Julius. RJ, take care of the damn basketball. The effort level was much better from the Knicks on Tuesday as opposed to Monday. I'll give them that. But after you have a 40-point third quarter, I'm sorry. You got to find a way to win that game. You can't yuck it up down the stretch the way that they did. Hideous, hideous loss. All right, who's next? Yo, JJ, Charlie from Elmers. I mean, my goodness, that was a crushing loss by the Knicks. And back to Monday, basically, this team had show up, letting the Hornets team come on the building. No energy. Missing free throws, all on and on. And this game, yeah, they came back in the third quarter, and but they couldn't get the hammer down. And I mean, stupid fouls to begin the fourth quarter. Three fouls in like a basically sixty seconds. That three consecutive turnovers at in crunch time. And I mean, I'm concerned with these free throw misses on the Knicks. But I mean, what the hell is going on? I mean, come on. John and John, me, whoever, I'll walk my ass off to, let's say, let's say be an NBA 80% shooter from a free throw, free throw. I'll walk my ass off to be like that. I mean, come on, man. You can't, you cannot leave like nine free points on the table. They made four of them. They probably won this game. And the ball movement stopped. I mean, um, I mean, they try to do ISO ball, which I hated. I mean, I can't stand the turnovers, the sloppy turnovers. Uh, I mean, now back to under 500. Uh, I was so pumped up going this week. And now I'm better uh, with this tough schedule coming up. I mean, they, they can't throw games away like that. They cannot throw games away like that. Unacceptable. That was bad. That was really bad. Feel your pain, Charlie. They flushed that one down the toilet in the fourth quarter. There have been way too many games like this. Winnable games that have gotten away from the Knickerbockers. And you need your best players delivering for you in crunch time. Barry can't be turning the ball over. And listen, the officiating was not great. But that's not the reason Knicks lost this game. I don't want to hear that. That's a lame excuse. If there's a call, though, that kind of really ticked me off, thinking back on it now, when it looked like RJ got the steal on the deflection with Russell right there, Russell gave him a little bit of a nudge. Could have called a foul. Could have called a foul. There were a couple instances like that where the officiating would drive you insane. But again, the Knicks shooting the way that they did from the charity stripe turning the ball over, not delivering in crunch time the way they need to. Like, Kemba Walker's red hot. I know he missed a shot or two late in the game. Get him the ball again. It's hot. Rotten. It's weird. Nick's been a better team when Kemba Walker has played. He does not play like a defense. 
He's clearly not the guy he was. But when he's in there, offensively, he performs. Can't tell me otherwise. Look at the numbers and look at the way the team plays when he's on the court. Numbers back it up. All right, last but not least, then we're going to hit some trivia. Let's hear it. Hey, JJ, what's going on? It's Pete in Westchester here. Hope you enjoyed uh, Wild Card Super Weekend. Pretty cool to have the Monday night game. I think we can finally uh, settle on the fact that Baker Mayfield was more the issue than Odell Beckham Jr. So, you know, uh, still, it still makes me happy to see Odell doing well. I mean, I didn't want to trade him as a Giants fan, so it makes me happy to see that, uh, you know, he's, he's doing well over there. So Sunday, pretty good from a Giants fan perspective, you know, watching the Eagles and the Cowboys lose. But, you know, man, I'm scrolling through Twitter today. I'm just seeing that Joe Shine seems to be the front-runner candidate for the job, which is just good. But, dude, I'm just – honestly, I'm just exhausted with all this. You know, this is the third, fourth time we're going through this, and I just, like, I'm having a hard time trying to get excited about any of these candidates, any of these head coach candidates. It's just like we're in this cycle here, and it's – not going to be it's not like it's going to be a quick fix you know it's not like we're going to be back to being relevant next year this is going to take time we got no cap space you know we got no quarterback we got nothing we got no offensive line and i'm just having a really tough time getting psyched up and usually at this point of the year when the giants suck it's like okay well you know we're past christmas we're into the middle of january we got spring training on deck but we don't even have that oh man ah, well we got the Knicks and the islanders all right man thanks a lot bye not too thrilled about what I've seen from the Knicks. Uh, that's not exactly a comforting thought going into February, March, and beyond. That's number one. Um, I understand your take with the Giants. They got to earn your trust back. Ownership has got to earn your trust back. Here's why I'd preach the positive about this hiring cycle from afar. Because to tell you that I know that Joe Shane is a given to be a good GM or polls the guy from Kansas City is a, a, a slam dunk, I have no idea. Until these guys have the job and they're in the big chair, you know, it's a guessing game. I like that they're going outside the organization. And I like the fact that they're going to teams that have had a lot of success. Buffalo has been in the playoffs a bunch. Kansas City's won a bunch of titles. Like, they're getting individuals, it appears, from really smart football places. And you'll have a GM and a head coach on the exact same timetable. If Joe Shane ends up getting the job, you got to think that Brian Dable becomes a major frontrunner to be the next head coach of the New York Giants. Right? Buffalo connection. Dable and the masterful work he's done with Josh Allen. Listen, I want Brian Dable coaching the Dolphins. But if Joe Shane gets this giant job, I don't think Brian Dable's going to Miami. I think he'll be here. And I like that pair. I do. I think if they end up with Joe Shane and Brian Dable moving forward, I think it's a good place to be if you're the Giants. But I'm with you long term. This next year is probably not, you know, an all-in type of proposition. Like, I do not. Now that they have fired the GM and the head coach, I, I think they're going to use 2022 as a reset year. Could be wrong, but I think the way to kind of hack the cap, clear the deck, go get a quarterback the following year, I think it's the perfect way to do so. And, yeah, it's crazy thinking about Beckham. It's the first playoff game for him since the boat game in Lambo. And he delivered. I was hard on him. I didn't love the move. I didn't love the signing. He's been terrific for the Rams. All right, it's trivia Tuesday and a Wednesday, and I have sucked. Let's call it like it is. Since the start of the new year, I don't know what has happened to my powers. I feel like the monsters, the trivia monsters have like taken them away from me. So I, I, I got to get 
off the wagon. I, I got to get back to winning ways. So let's see what we have in store. Yo, Larry in Florida. Bring your A game tonight, brother. Question one is, uh, name, name the only Heisman Trophy winning quarterback to win a Super Bowl with the team that drafted him. The second one is three quarterbacks since 1950 started the playoff game in their first game. First in the started the playoff game in their rookie season and started the playoff game in their last season. Three quarterbacks since 1950. Who are they? I'm out. Two fabulous questions. Fabulous questions from Larry. When we come back. We'll dive into these. Uh, and I'm going to start with the playoff game one because there's one that's just off the top of my head that I think I'm going to know right away. The other two, we'll have to wait and see. All right, we're coming right back. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube. Car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All right, Larry, I'm going to start with question two. Three quarterbacks that played in a playoff game their rookie year and in their final season. Well, I can think of one right off the tip of my tongue. Soon to be Hall of Famer, Ben Roethlisberger. See, that one I was very, very confident in. And you know Larry likes to tie in the trivia to what's going on here in our sports world. He likes to tie in the current events. Give him credit for that. Okay. So one down, two to go. Playoff game in his rookie year. Playoff game in his final year. See, that rules out a guy like Peyton Manning immediately. Because Peyton Manning's first year, his team ended up going 3-13. and 13. First year. Final year, found their way into the postseason. All right, I'm throwing this one out there, guys. I'm not 1,000% confident, but I'm going to do it anyway. Is it the guy who is staring me in the face? The legend. Laces out, Dan Marino. Two down. One to go. Was not positive about Marino's rookie year being in the postseason. Of course, Marino's second year, he ends up in a Super Bowl, loses to Joe Montana, never gets back. Hard to believe, but never gets back. Two down, one to go. Playoff game in his rookie year. Playoff game in his final year. Gentlemen, is it Roger Staubach? Okay. All right. I think I may have our final guess. Is it Joe Cool, Mr. Montana? 
Well, that's out. You know what? That's an that's idiotic, idiotic guess by me, considering that Joe Montana ended his career with the Kansas City Chiefs. So honestly, uh, that that's embarrassing. Shameful, shameful job by me. Shameful job. Gentlemen, I'm asking for a hint here on this final quarterback. You got a decade for me, at least? Yes. Uh, within the last 10 to 15 years. Yes. Ooh. Was not expecting that as a guess. Playoff game, rookie year, and in the final year. Within the last 10 to 15 years. Hmm. Hmm. Rules out far because he didn't do it his last year. He's a Minnesota Viking. Had one great year in Minnesota and then had a terrible season with the Vikings. The 2010 year when he'd like back. Within the last 10 to 15 years, quarterback. Oh, man. AFC or an NFC quarterback, Stefan? AFC. AFC quarterback. Last 10 to 15 years. Hmm. In the playoffs. See, I had a guess, but it's not within the last 10 to 15 years, so I'm throwing it out the window. I was going to guess Jim Kelly, but that's out. That's completely out because it's not within the last 10 to 15 years. Think dominant rookie quarterbacks. Dominant rookie quarterbacks. Is it Steve McNair? <laughs> dominant rookie quarterbacks. Oh, I got it. Great job. Great hint. Andrew Luck. There you go. And by the way, Andrew Luck is going to end up costing me 100 bucks. Why do I say that? Made a bet with the Great Eagle Eye Picks at a chance. This was during a Stanford-Notre Dame game over a couple too many cocktails that Andrew Luck would end up as a Hall of Famer. As we know, that will not be the case. He's not getting in. Didn't play long enough. He would have gotten in. I am fairly confident in that. That one stinks. That's a hundred bucks I'd like that. All right. Pretty proud of that trivia performance, not gonna lie. But I got one more question. Quarterback that won the Heisman Trophy with the team that drafted him. Heisman Trophy quarterback with the team that drafted him. Is it John Elway? It's not Elway. Okay. It's not L.A. Is it Roger Staubach? Not bad. Not bad. I, I, I had Roger Staubach on the mind today for whatever the reason. Had Roger Staubach on the mind. You know what else I had on the mind? I had the Seminoles there. Uh, I needed them to cover five against the Dukies. Thank goodness that game did not go to a double overtime because th that would not have been ideal. So nice win for one at Hamilton. Syracuse should beat them twice, by the way. And now Syracuse gets to play Angry Duke on Saturday. Oh my God, that's gonna be that's gonna be an absolute shit show. I mean, please, please. Syracuse against Duke. Uh, I should sleep in at high noon. Waking up is only gonna give me agita. All right.
Before we say goodbye, the great Jeff Money, who may be in the lab thinking about what he's going to do for Thursday. I don't know. He may have some NBA or some some college on the horizon. All right, Money. Floor is yours. What up, JJ? Jeff Money here with a handicapper picks. This is going to be for tomorrow, Wednesday, the 19th. I'm going to go in college basketball. I'm going to take TCU. Right now, the opening line is plus five over Oklahoma State. Again, it's going to be TCU plus the five. All right, JJ. I'm out of here. Let's go. I love that Jeff Money is diving in to the early college basketball. And I actually have a college basketball play that I am lining up for tomorrow. I like St. John's getting points, getting four against Creighton. That is a game I will absolutely be on. It went from five and a half to four. Johnny's coming off a nice performance. I'm going to be on St. John's without a doubt. That's a game I have circled. I'll give you another one to be careful of. Kentucky against A&M tomorrow. Because Kentucky's got a monster game with Auburn coming up over the weekend. That has look ahead against the Aggies written all over it. Be careful with Kentucky laying points tomorrow. Uh, as far as your TCU Okie State bet, 67% of the tickets are coming in on TCU. I haven't moved the line. Uh, I don't have a feel on that game. I will not be going anywhere near that game. But I'm thinking Texas A&M. And I am thinking St. John's for a little Wednesday court in college basketball. We're back Thursday, and it's going to be a badass weekend of divisional playoff games. I can't wait. We'll have all the picks. We'll have Ariel Epstein back. She killed it last week with all the props. So she'll be back by popular demand. Art will join us. All fixtures. And maybe we'll have some news on the Giant GM and head coaching search. I feel like. Once the Giants have a GM, we can really narrow down the head coaching field that much more. But in the meantime, it's kind of the waiting game. So a lot more agony and misery watching the Knicks on a night and night basis. I mean, my goodness. That's that's one that's one that's tough to take. At least Syracuse won today. Whoopty freaking though. I needed something, you know. Silver lining, as they say. Always need the silver lining. Fellas, outstanding job. Can't say enough good things about Chris Herring's book. Go get it, go read it. As soon as you listen to this podcast, order it on Amazon, please. And thank me later. We're back on Thursday. Until then, JJ out. Be good, everybody. <laughs>